Leviticus chapter 8, verse 1 through 4, 31, 35 through 36. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 4, 22 through 24. Chapter 10, verse 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron and his sons, their garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams, and the basket containing bread made without yeast, and gather the entire assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly gathered at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses then said to Aaron and his sons, you must stay at the entrance to the tent of meeting day and night for seven days and do what the Lord requires, so you will not die. For that is what I have been commanded. So Aaron and his sons did everything the Lord commanded through Moses. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, and present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, Take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering, to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with olive oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy in the sight of all the people. I will be glorified. The word of the Lord. For the past uh, several years, um, there are a number of cultural analysts and sociologists and many others who have noticed a very unique phenomenon that is happening in our modern world. Uh, human beings hunger for meaning and transcendence. And even though belief in God and formal religious participation are declining here in the Western world, nonetheless, that hunger for meaning and transcendence has not gone away. So as a result, many people are turning to lots of different kinds of 
spiritual practices. For instance, just this morning, I read an opinion piece in the Sunday Review of the New York Times. The author describes himself as somebody who was raised a religious person, and yet professionally, he says, I'm a skeptic. I don't really, I'm an agnostic. I don't know if I really believe in God. And yet, he says, spiritual malnutrition, malnutrition of the soul, he says, is, is one of the modern plagues of our modern world. And so as a result, he finds himself going on a spiritual pilgrimage, trying to find some spiritual connection and writing about it. And, and you read through the comments and you find other people saying, yeah, I'm not religious either, but I, here's how I try to find spiritual connection. Hunger for meaning and transcendence has not gone away in our world. So people are looking to other spiritual practices or people are turning to things other than God to fill that need for meaning and transcendence. So maybe it's, uh, you know, things like the museum or the sports arena or romance or partying or especially nowadays politics. Um, So instead of going to church on Sunday mornings, uh, maybe it's CrossFit. Maybe it's brunch and mimosas. Maybe it's a soccer game. Maybe it's meet the press. I don't know. But the point is, something is there in our lives, something that we look to, to give us a sense of fullness and wholeness and meaning, to give us a sense that we're connected to something bigger than ourselves. We've been looking for it all our lives, even if we're not sure it really exists. We're longing for it, even if we're not sure what it really is. Here's the question. If God really does exist, and if we're really meant for him, then how do we actually get connected to God? And if you do believe, how does that connection grow? This passage that we just read shows us. We're in a series on the book of Leviticus. In the very first week, we looked at this tent of meeting. The tent is the place of God's presence, and God wants to invite us in to his presence. And then we spent the next five weeks looking at these various offerings that happen inside of the tent. But all of that was just preparation. Today is opening day. Today, this passage we just read, the tent is now open for business. And the ones who carry out the business of the tent are the priests. Now, I don't know your experience with priests. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, maybe it's nothing at all. But, but that longing that we all have to connect with something bigger than ourselves, this passage is showing us that it's God. And the job of the priest is, is, is to help us into the presence of God, into the very presence of God. How does that happen? What does that mean? Let's learn three things about these priests this morning. We're going to see why we need a priest, secondly, what a priest does, and lastly, how the real priest works, okay? Why we need a priest, what a priest does, and how the real priest works, okay? First, why do we need a priest? Um, In chapter 8, Aaron and his sons are being ordained. That means that they're being made ready and prepared and commissioned to carry out the business of the tent. So if you look at verse 2 at the very beginning, God tells Moses, get Aaron and his sons. They have special garments. There's anointing oil. There are animals for the sacrifice. And then in verse 3, God says, gather all the people and bring all of this stuff, bring everything to the entrance to the tent of meeting. So this tent is where everything's happening. So in order to understand what's going on in this passage, we have to understand what is the tent? What is the tent? 
Um, This passage actually tells us exactly what it is. If you look at the end of chapter 8, in verse 35, Moses tells Aaron and his sons, stay at the entrance to the tent for seven days. Now, I don't know how well you know the Bible, but seven days. Does that sound familiar? This is a callback to Genesis 1. At the beginning of the Bible, God creates the world in seven days. Uh, The problem is, right at the beginning of that creation, the first human beings rebelled against God, and the world started falling apart. Have you ever thought about why it bothers us so much that this world is the way it is? Like, if there is no God, if this world is all there is, then by definition, this world is already exactly the way it's supposed to be. But we know it's not. Why is that? The answer is Genesis 1. God created this world to be a place of goodness, beauty, and perfection. And the memory of that and the longing for that, it's like it's hardwired into every human being. That's that's why we hunger for a world made new. The Bible is the story of God looking at his creation, looking at a world that's fallen apart and saying, this was not my intention for creation. I'm going to bring about a new creation. That is exactly what's going on with the tent here. The tent is the beginning of God's new creation. And the Bible makes this very clear. So again, back in Genesis 1, God creates the world in seven days. And by the way, for centuries, many Christians have understood that this doesn't necessarily mean seven literal days, but, but the world starts falling apart. So God says, okay, I'm going to do a new creation. So in Genesis 6 through 9, God brings a flood on the world. The flood is basically, it's a do-over. It's, it's a new creation. But at the very beginning of that, um, that falls apart. Um, his first representatives um, blow it and, and they you know, make a mess of things. So in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, God says, okay, new creation. I'm bringing Israel out of slavery. And um, he brings them out and he's doing a new creation with them. God is constantly doing a new creation. So in Genesis, seven days. In Exodus, he gives Moses instructions for building the tent. And he does so in a series of seven speeches. And then when Moses builds the tent at the end of Exodus, he does so in a series of seven stages. And then here in this passage, um, in Leviticus 8, when they're ordaining the priest, it happens in a series of seven steps. Are you starting to get the point? Just to make sure that we don't miss what's really going on here, the very end of chapter 8, God tells Moses uh, to tell Aaron and his sons, stay at the entrance to the tent for seven days. The tent is the beginning of of God's new creation. So at the very beginning of chapter 9, you notice what it says? On the eighth day. Now in the Bible, the eighth day is always the day of new beginnings. Okay? Um, Leviticus is telling us that this eighth day is the first day of God's new creation. Friends, this is the answer to our deepest longings and our greatest needs. We long to find a way back into the presence of God. The problem is we can't get in all by ourselves. We need help. So for years, centuries really, uh, people throughout history have always felt that, that there's a gap between human beings and God and that we need help bridging the gap 
between those two things. So that's why uh, ancient people had temples and priests, and they would offer sacrifices in these temples. The priests were there to help bridge the gap, to help get people back into the presence of God. Now, as modern people, we have a tendency to look at that, and we scoff. We, we laugh, we ridicule, we say, um, you know, how primitive, how retrograde, how otios and irrelevant, silly ancient people. No, not silly. Because as I just mentioned a bit ago, we modern people, we may have gotten rid of belief in God, but we have not gotten rid of our need for God. Instead of focusing our need for hunger, our, our hunger for meaning and transcendence on God, we simply shift it and focus it on other things. But none of them really work. None of them really have the power to meet our need for meaning and transcendence. The reason is because we're made for God and nothing else. So one of the most stunning examples of this that I've seen recently is a, uh, it's a British BBC show called Fleabag. It actually just won a number of Emmy Awards. And if you want to check it out, um, I think it's a very worthwhile show to watch. FYI, it is a very heavy show with some very adult themes. I was grateful that it wasn't overly graphic, but just a heads up, it is an adult show. Uh, it's about a woman who is so overcome with guilt and grief that she's never been able to come to terms with any of this stuff. And as a result, she drinks, she parties, um, especially she engages in a lot of promiscuity, but none of it really works. Later on in the show, she meets a priest and she starts hanging out with him, um, not because she's interested in God. She explicitly says that she doesn't believe in God. No, she starts spending time with the priest because he's a handsome young dude and she sees him as one of her, you know, uh, she wants to spend time with the priest, not God. <laughs> And yet, even though she explicitly says she doesn't believe in God, at, at, later on, after she's been spending time with him, she gets to a point where she's just so overcome with the grief and the guilt and the sorrow of her life and all of the burdens on her heart that she doesn't know what to do with that stuff. She goes to the church, not because she wants to see the priest, but because she just wants to sit in one of the pews. She doesn't know what else to do. And as she's sitting there, it's, it's really quite amazing. She finds herself, to her own amazement, getting down on her knees. And, and then she looks to the camera as if to say, can you believe I'm about to do this? And, and, and she's about to start praying when all of a sudden she hears rap music coming from the priest's chambers. He's a very unique priest. Um, but it stops her from praying. And instead, she begins having this conversation with the priest. And, and at one point, the priest says, hey, would you like to confess? Let's, let's go to this booth. You can, you can confess to me if you want. And she says, okay. And so she goes into the confession booth with the priest, and it's the very first time in her life she's ever begun to get honest and real with another human being about all the burdens that are weighing on her, about all the guilt and the grief and the things that she's done in her life. And as the priest very gently and very patiently helps her through the process, she starts spilling more and more of her soul to him until finally she's so overcome, she just starts weeping, and she says this to him. She says, I think I just want someone to tell me how to live my life, Father, because so far I think I've been getting it wrong. But I know that's why people want people like you in their lives, because you just tell them what to do and what they'll get out the end of it. And even though I don't believe any of it, and I know that scientifically nothing that I do makes any difference in the end anyway, 
I'm still scared. Why am I so scared? What's happening to her? I mean, keep in mind, this is a British show written and produced by a British woman, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, which means that all of this is taking place in a very secular context. In the UK, belief in God is mocked. And yet, here's this secular atheist woman telling this priest that even though she doesn't believe in any of this stuff, nonetheless, she finds in herself a longing for everything this priest represents, connection to God, healing in God, closure and acceptance and peace with God. She doesn't believe in any of it, but she longs for it. Friends, here's the point. We all experience this. Don't you? The problem is we don't have the power to get into the presence all by ourselves. That's why we need a priest. We need help. Help to get back into the presence of God. That's the first thing we see here. But secondly, we need to see what does a priest do? How does, how does the priest actually work, actually help us to get back into the presence of God? There are two big things that a priest does. A priest bears the burdens of the people to God, and the priest shares the glory of God with the people. Okay? A priest bears the people's burdens to God, and the priest shares God's glory with the people. Okay? Let's look at those briefly. First, a priest bears people's burdens to God. Now, we didn't read all of chapter 8, but the whole chapter is focused on getting Aaron and his sons ready to carry on the business of the tent. So they have to wash. They have a special uniform they have to wear. They have offerings and sacrifices that they have to make, all because they have to, they have to make themselves holy because they're about to come into the presence of a holy God. And then in chapter 9, now the tent is ready to open for business. And the reason the priests go into the tent is because they're going in to represent the people to God. The priests go into the tent to represent people to God. In fact, part of the priest's uniform is they had a breast piece that had 12 stones in the breast piece. And on each one of those 12 stones was written one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, the priest is literally carrying the names of the people right into the presence of God. The priest bears the people's burdens. The priest bears their sins, bears their guilt, bears all of the messed up stuff in their life. Do you have messed up stuff in your life? And I don't mean messed up things that have happened to you. We all have that. I mean messed up things you've done, things you've said, ways that you've hurt and damaged people and places and things, ways that you've contributed to a world that's falling apart. We all have stuff like that in our lives. The problem is it's too heavy for us to carry all by ourselves. It's like that woman in the show Fleabag I was just talking about. She's got all this guilt, all this grief, all this stuff in her life. She doesn't even believe in God, and yet all of this stuff, it's too heavy for her to carry. She can't bear it all by herself. The priest bears our burdens into the presence of God. In effect, says to God, God, I have made myself pure and holy and beautiful for you. And I ask you now, forgive these people on my behalf because I've offered all the right sacrifices. I've done all the right things. And now I ask you to forgive them, not for their sake, but for my sake. The priest bears our burdens into the presence of God. But secondly, priests also share God's glory with the people. So if you look back in our passage here, in chapter 9, when the priests go in, 
Um, They have to offer sacrifices for themselves and for the people. But what's the point of all of this? The point is very clear. In verse 4 of chapter 9, it says, For today the Lord will appear to you. Friends, this is the main thing that we're supposed to see in chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Leviticus. Today the glory of God will appear to you. Today you are getting back into the presence of God. Because after they offer all of these sacrifices, what happens? If you look at verse 23, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Moses and Aaron go into the presence of God. But when they come out, what comes out with them? The presence of God. The glory of God. And look what happens next. It says that, Um, In verse 24, um, fire came out and consumed the offerings. That means that God is accepting them. means that God is now pleased with them. He's accepting the offerings. God is bestowing his love and his favor and his acceptance on the people. But even that's not the most amazing thing. What happens to them as a result of this? If you look again at verse 24, it says, When all the people saw it, when they saw the glory of God, they shouted for joy and fell face down. What does the glory of God do for you? When you get into the presence of God, what does it do? It means two things. First, it means a deep, transformational, radical experience of life-changing humility. They fell face down. When you really get into the presence of God, all of a sudden there's no more looking down on other people. There's no more judging other people and, and, and feeling better than other people as though we're standing on some kind of higher moral ground. There's no more of that. When you get into the presence of God, there's a radical experience of life-changing humility. But that's not all. There's also a joy, a deep confidence in joy, which is actually kind of weird when you think about it because if you really were to come into the presence of someone so powerful and so holy that the only sensible response is to fall down on your face, then you should be quaking in your boots. But not only is there a fearful humility here, there is a deep, abiding joy, a shout of joy. I mean, think about this for just a moment. You know, in liberal expressions of religion and spirituality, there's lots of joy but no fear. Because there's no God of judgment. There's no God of wrath. It's just a loving God, but not a holy God. That means there's no sin. There's no guilt. And therefore, there's no repentance and no humility. We feel like we can just waltz right into the presence of God. Like, you know, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. There's no, no joy. I mean, there's lots of joy, but no fear. But then in conservative expressions of religion, it's the opposite. There's lots of fear, but no joy. You know, you got to obey the rules. You have to do the right thing, live a good life. There's this constant fear of a holy God, but no confidence in a loving God. But what do we have here? In, In this passage, we're seeing something completely different, both a holy God and a loving God, both a fearful humility and a confident joy This is a God that when you meet this God, when you really get into the presence of this God, it humbles you to your knees, but it also puts a shout of joy in your hearts. Friends, there is no God like this God. Why do we need a priest? 
Because we need someone or something to help us back into the presence of the thing we long for more than anything else. What does a priest do? A priest bears our burdens to God and shares God's glory to us, producing a humility and a joy in our life. And that leads to the last thing we need to see, which is how does the real priest work? Because whether you're a Christian this morning or whether you're here exploring faith in Jesus, all of us might be inclined to ask, okay, this all sounds great. But how can mere human beings do all of this for us? The answer is they can't. And this passage is actually showing us that. Because chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Leviticus are really all one story. It's all one story. Chapter 8, preparation for the new creation. Chapter 9, inauguration of the new creation. Chapter 10, whoops, it all falls apart. Because no sooner have the people seen the glory of God, if you turn your um, page over, you look, it says that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command, so fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, what's probably happening here is they took censers, that's a container, and they put fire in it that's probably like burning charcoal charcoal mixed with incense, they took that fire and they went right into the Holy of Holies, which is the innermost presence of God. Basically, they were just barging in to the very presence of God. They're bringing their own fire, and it says God's fire comes out and consumes them because they did it, as the passage says, contrary to God's command. Now, once again, this is really significant for us. Think about this. Here we have the inauguration of God's new creation. And then you have a couple of God's representatives who do something contrary to God's commands with disastrous results. Does that sound familiar? It should. This is the recurring story of the Bible. Go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Inauguration of God's creation, but two of God's representatives rebel against him and the whole world starts falling apart. But God says, I'm not finished yet. So chapters 6 through 9, Noah and the ark, God sends a flood on the world. It's a do-over. It's a new creation. But, but two of his representatives, well, more than that, Noah and his sons, God's representatives, they make a mess of things almost right away. God's still not done. In Exodus, God brings Israel out of slavery. It's a new creation. But no sooner has God brought them out of slavery that they betray God by making a golden calf and worshiping it instead of God. Do you see the pattern here? Every time God inaugurates a new creation, human beings mess it up. And we see the same exact thing happening in this passage. Because what we have here is is the story of the Bible. Um, Every time God inaugurates a new creation, human beings mess it up. And, And we see that in this passage, especially when we understand what's going on with the fire. What's the fire all about? You know, in the Bible one of the most common ways that God manifests himself in the world is through fire. So fire represents the glory of God. It represents the power of God. Fire represents the holiness and the majesty and the splendor of God. And I'll tell you what, every single one of us, we want that. We want that in our lives. We want access to that. We want to get into that. We want to get near that. But, but there's a problem with that. And here's what I mean. Have you ever felt shut out? Have you ever felt excluded? 
Have you ever felt like an outsider? Of course. That's one of the most common experiences of being a human being. We all feel like a nobody, and so we want to prove to the world that we're a somebody. And so, for instance, why do we work so hard at, um, at school or our career or at being a great parent? Why do we work so hard at being perfect or being needed or being unique or the best or in control or being smart or beautiful or thin or whatever it might be? It's because every single one of us wants to be a somebody. The problem is most of the time we feel like a nobody. So what do we do? We want to have a power of our own. We want to have a glory of our own. We want to have a majesty and a splendor of our own. We want to shake our fist at the world and say, I am a somebody. Basically, we want to be masters of the fire. And we live in a culture that says, yeah, go for it. You don't let anyone else define you. You should define yourself. You have to look inside of your heart. You have to look inside of yourself and find the power and the glory that's within you. And then you have to assert that power and glory to the world around you. Friends, that is exactly what's going on with Nadab and Abihu here. Now, here's the thing. The Bible would agree with our culture and say, you shouldn't let other people define you. Don't do that. However, the Bible would go on to say, that does not mean that you define yourself. God defines you. God defines you. Because what do we do? You know, the whole story of the Bible is all about us, how we want to be masters of the fire. We don't want to look to God for power and glory. We want to look to ourselves for power and glory. We want to be masters of the fire. And every time we do that, we mess everything up. And then God comes and God is totally committed to setting everything right. I mean, the whole point of this whole story, Leviticus 8 through 10, is simply this. Human priests can never get us all the way into the presence of God. Human priests can never get us all the way in, but they do and can point us to the one who does. They can point us to the true master of the fire, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the power of God. He is the glory of God. Jesus is the holiness and the majesty and the splendor of God in human flesh. We need someone to bear our burdens to God. We need someone to share God's glory with us. Jesus Christ is the God of the universe who came to earth as a human being in order to do just that. That's what he came to do. Because Jesus Christ is the truly perfect representative. He is the truly perfect holy one. He's the true master of the fire. He came to bear our burdens. And on the cross, he looks at you and me, at all of us, and he says, I'm here to bear your burdens. Give them to me. See here, my arms are open wide. They're, they're nailed down so far so that, so that they will never close shut again. This is not a trick. Give me your pain. Give me your sorrow. Give me your burden, your grief, your guilt, your pain, your sin, your failures. Give it all to me. I will bear it for you. And what happens if we do that? We get the glory. We get the presence. We get the very presence of God in our lives. Because what is God's commitment to us? Why does Jesus have to bear our burdens? To give us his glory. Did you notice at the very end of the passage when Nadab and Abihu, when they perish, God says, in the sight of all the peoples, I will be glorified. Kind of a weird thing to say. I mean, these guys just died. And God is saying, in the sight of all the people, 
I will be glorified. Here's what this means. God is saying, even though someone might perish, I am so committed to giving you my glory that because it's what you most deeply need that even if it means someone has to perish, I am committed to giving you my glory. Friends, Jesus Christ is the true master of the fire who perished so that we could have the glory of God. Because right before Jesus Christ went to the cross, he said, now God is going to be glorified. Now God is going to reveal his glory to the world. And I, if I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all peoples to myself. It's the fulfillment of when God said, in the sight of all the people, I will be glorified. The cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate place where the glory of God was revealed and given to the world. Because on the cross, the offering was consumed. The fire of God came down and consumed the offering, signaling we are now accepted by God. But in this case, it wasn't a bull or a lamb or a goat. It was the very Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. The true master of the fire was consumed by God's fire so that you and me could be warmed at God's fire. So that, so that you and me and all of us could have everything we've been longing for all our lives to be seen and known to be welcomed and invited in, to be delighted in and cherished and loved and, 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 and beautified. It's, it's the fulfillment so that now everything you've been longing for all your life is now perfectly and finally yours. And here's what this means for us. First, if you're here this morning and you're exploring faith in Jesus, you're not sure what you believe about God or Jesus or any of that stuff, I want to encourage you this morning that God does not love you and accept you because you bring some fire. In other words, um, we have an instinct to say, okay, if I live a good life, if I'm a good person, if I do the right thing, then God will love me and accept me. Basically, we're trying to be masters of the fire. We want to come into God's presence in our own power and glory. But the gospel says God does not love you and accept you because you bring some fire. The gospel says God loves you and accepts you because Jesus was consumed by the fire for you. That means we cannot earn our way into the presence of God. We can only trust the one who earned it for us, Jesus Christ. And I encourage you this morning to trust Jesus, the real priest, to get you into the presence of God. But secondly, if you're a Christian here this morning, then here's what this means for us. You know, both the Old Testament and the New Testament say that not only was there a formal order of priests in the Old Testament, but that now all God's people are the priesthood of God. But a very different kind of priesthood. Because human priests can never get us all the way in. They can only point us to the one who can. That, that the people of God, every person, not just specialized people, professional people, professional priests, holy people, no. All of the people of God, it's a new priesthood. And our job is not to get people into the presence of God, but to point them to the one who can. What does that look like? It means that we're people who bear and people who share. We bear people's burdens. And that doesn't mean that we bear their sins. Only Jesus Christ can do that. But it does mean that we love people, we listen to people, we weep with people, care for them, pray with them. We, we, we care for the poor. We show solidarity with the oppressed and the marginalized. We bear people's burdens. And as we do that, we share God's glory with them. In other words, when people get near to you, do they sense something of Jesus in you? You know, the, the more we are formed and shaped in the image of Christ the more that, that people should be able to see something of Jesus when they get near to you. 
that, that the glory of God would be shooting out all of the cracks of your own messed up, broken life. There should be a confident joy in you. There should be a deep humility in you so that as people get near to you, as you bear their burdens, as you share God's love with them, that you would be sharing his kingdom and his glory and his presence and his gospel with them. You know, we all want someone to be in our corner, don't we? We all want to know that there are people in the world who are for us, right? Are there people in your life who don't know Jesus but do know that you are for them? And even more than that, that through you they know that God is for them. I want to challenge all of us this morning. Find two, three, or four people in your life who don't know Jesus and commit to being for them and commit to to showing them that God is for them. Bear their burdens. Share God's glory with them. Invest in them. Know them. Love them. Listen to them. Care for them. Weep with them. Pray for them. Are there four people in your life that you can be for? to be the priesthood that God has called us to be. We're not the ones who get people all the way into God, but we do point them to the one who can, the only true and ultimate master of the fire, the ultimate priest, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we long for you. We yearn for you. And even if we may not know it, recognize it, understand it, or acknowledge it, we desire nothing except for you. You are the one and the thing that we have been looking for and longing for all our lives. And we praise you this morning that through Jesus, we have access that we can finally get all the way in. We thank you for our great high priest who bore our burdens on the cross to bring us before you and who now has revealed and given your glory to us through his sacrifice on the cross. We pray this morning that you would help us to trust in Jesus and his work for us. And we pray even more that you would help us to be the priests that you've called us all to be, that we would bear others' burdens and share your glory with them, that they too might come to know and love and trust in this burden-bearing, glory-sharing God, our Savior Jesus Christ. For we pray it in his name. Amen.